0: Back to the Evidence Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 76 Efficacy and Safety of Voclosporin, Versus Placebo for Lupus Nephritis, the Aurora 1 Trial. Now, I know I'm in the midst of a series on the new Anca Vasculitis Guidelines, which I am very excited about and which is almost done recording, so as the guidelines themselves arrive, I'll be releasing the episodes. But I had to take a brief break to dive into the Voclosporin data, which is finally at long last published. Before I dive into that, though, I do want to discuss a few things that came up in the wake of my podcast on the Avacapan trial. This has been a hot topic in the news because the FDA was not entirely excited about Avacapan and certainly did not reflect the online discourse. The advisory committee ultimately voted about evenly on whether or not to move forward with Avacapan. We'll see what the FDA ultimately decides. But I did want to highlight one important problem with how I presented the data, which changes how I ultimately view this. If I could sum this up in one simple phrase, it is that in this trial, I really do think that they killed the control group. They didn't actually kill the control group, but they gave the control group inadequate standard of care. I talked about this in my prior podcast when I pointed out that they stopped prednisone at week 20. Stopping prednisone at week 20 in anca associated vasculitis is not something that I see done widely and is truthfully something that I have never done. I think it would have been more appropriate to use the low-dose regimen from the PEXIVAS trial, which they were, of course, aware of when they built this study. And I think that the fact that they did not is problem number one. Problem number two, which the FDA also honed in on, is that there was a lot of steroid that was given that was not part of the protocol, 86% of patients, in fact, got steroid when they should not necessarily have. Ultimately, there was a difference, but I very much agree with the FDA's formulation here, which is that this was not a trial of a vacapan versus steroids. This was a trial of a vacapan plus a little bit of steroid versus more steroid. I think that's how we should be talking about this trial, not as if it's some revolutionary new therapy that obviated the need for steroids entirely. And last, and probably most importantly, I need to highlight a problem that a listener to the podcast, Ann pointed pointed out to me, and which is something that the FDA also pointed out and considered a main problem with the study, which is that the patients who got rituximab did not get redosed. I can't emphasize this enough, and I do think it's worth noting why I didn't notice this. If you go back and listen, you can see that I read the actual methodology, and I was confused by the way they described it. In my head, it was obvious that patients who got rituximab would be followed by some type of maintenance. I even said, and I quote, when I first read this trial, I had this sinking sensation that they didn't do anything for patients who received rituximab, which would be pretty crazy. And end quote. Now, I did a little bit of a dig and I found the original protocol, which had a little graph that showed what patients got. The part that showed therapy said, ritux, comma, four weeks of psych, comma, 13 weeks followed by azathioprine. Then the other one said, Ritux comma, four weeks of psych comma, 13 weeks followed by azathioprine. I read that to say that patients got Rituxmab or cyclophosphamide for induction therapy, then got azathioprine. While certainly not necessarily studied, that wouldn't be an entirely unreasonable regimen in 2016. And I conceded that as perhaps not the best thing, but not a terrible limitation of the study. What really happened was that people who got cyclophosphamide were followed by azathioprine and people who got rituximab didn't get any rituximab after the first four weeks of the trial. This changes everything for me and I think it's worth noting that it should for you as well. If you aren't attending and you had a fellow come to you and say, I have a patient with newly diagnosed severe vasculitis. my plan is to give them a quick steroid taper, stop them at week 20, take them off steroids entirely, give them rituximab up front, and then not redose it at all, and give them no further therapy at that point. I'm pretty sure you would tell that fellow about what I said in my last podcast, that that is a crazy regimen. If you are someone who is convinced that Avacapan is the best drug since sliced bread, you should also probably ask yourself why you haven't been stopping all therapies in anchovasculitis at week 20 to see what happens to people. I suspect you have not been doing that, and I suspect that you too should be concerned about these data. It's worth noting that I say concerned and not that I said we should disregard it entirely. It does look like Avacapan did something and the group did get less steroid, but we should be honest and say that it was just a little bit less steroid and that that was at week 26 in a group where we dropped patients off steroid entirely. Five milligrams of steroid is relatively well tolerated and especially in healthcare systems who are cost conscious, I could see them deciding that Avacapan isn't worth the benefit over continuing patients on five milligrams of steroid. The second thing is that I do think we should essentially disregard the results at week 52. I do not think that this trial in any way shows that Avacopan is superior to the standard of care, which would have been rituximab maintenance therapy. The group that got cyclophosphamide followed by azathioprine maintenance therapy, which I actually consider to be inferior maintenance therapy for vasculitis, that group didn't look any different than the Avacopan group. In the end, I'm left feeling that Avacopan has a modest steroids-bearing effect, and has no definitive data for superiority at week 52. I remain convinced that this is an exciting drug and remain extremely hopeful that we will see future studies to validate these findings against an appropriate standard of care. But at this point, I think the FDA's concerns are entirely reasonable, and I think rheumatologists should pump the brakes a little bit on their enthusiasm for this medication. With that, let's talk about voclosporin. We've been waiting for this trial for a very long time, and I'm excited that it's finally here. I will say that the preliminary results from the abstract that we had available seem to have followed through, but when you do a deep dive, this is again not terribly impressing, but a nice option. So the t- title of this trial was Efficacy and Safety of Vocalsporin versus placebo for lupus nephritis Aurora 1, Double Blind, Randomized, Multi-center, Placebo-Controlled Phase 3 trial. This is by Rovan et al. and published in May of 2021. Boclosporin, for those who don't know, is a calcineurin inhibitor, and it's, I guess, a nicer calcineurin inhibitor than the other ones that we have available. It has a consistent PK profile, so you don't have to check all these 6AM tacro levels, and it doesn't affect the concentration of mycophenolate, which is, of course, important if you are also giving patients mycophenolate. This trial was a phase 3 double-blind randomized trial in 27 different countries, To get into the trial, you had to have lupus and you had to have a kidney biopsy within two years of screening that showed class three, four or five lupus nephritis, which is pretty typical of these kinds of trials. There were a very small number of patients who had distant biopsies, but over 80% or so wound up having biopsies recently. So, you know, pretty reasonable. You had to have a current urine protein creatinine ratio of 1.5 milligrams or more, which is good. That's the kind of people for whom you would be looking to treat. Then you're ineligible if your GFR was below 45 milliliters per minute, which is not good because I would love to know what this drug looks like in people who have impaired GFR. Patients were randomized one-to-one to to receive either 23.75 milligrams of vocal twice daily for 52 weeks or matching placebo. Not bad. I like that. Everyone began a rapid table of oral prednisone on day three, which I don't really like. They just kind of did this. Patients were given IV solumedrol and admission, something like a gram or a half a gram, and it was adjusted based on how much they'd gotten previously. And then they were dropped to 20 milligrams or 25 milligrams, depending on their body weight, of oral prednisone for two weeks. Over a four month period, they were tapered rapidly down to 2.5 milligrams daily and could be tapered off entirely when clinically indicated, whatever that necessarily means. Now, I'm of course a big fan of less steroids, but this is certainly less steroids than I think most of us are accustomed to giving to lupus nephritis. And as far as I'm aware, there's no real data to support this over a higher-dose steroid regimen. Unlike the Avacopan trial, this isn't a huge concern to me because the patients still got MMF and they could still be on 2.5 milligrams of steroid. And then some people got vocalosporin or some people got placebo. So it's not like they went to no therapy. That said, it's a little peculiar. And reducing your background therapy, in my mind, raises the chances that people will flare. So in a way, you're kind of bumping the probability of a flare, which will help you show a difference between therapies. Compounding this peculiarity is what they did with MMF. Patients who were not taking MMF were started and up titrated to two grams daily. If they wanted to be up titrated to three grams daily, this was, and I quote, permitted with approval of the medical monitor, end quote. I don't entirely understand why a physician would need to get approval from a medical monitor to uptitrate MMF to what I think most of us consider to be the goal of therapy. The same question that I asked for Avacapan applies. If you had a fellow who said, I have a patient with newly diagnosed lupus nephritis, my plan is to give them 14 weeks of steroid and give them only two grams of MMF, and I'm not going to go up to three grams unless we get permission from another rheumatologist, I think you'd say that's a little bit weird. It's not as big of a problem because this was a problem shared across both groups and because it's not like the patients didn't get any therapy, but I would say that background therapy in this trial was inadequate. Moving on to the primary endpoint, which was the complete renal response at week 52 as defined by a composite of urine protein creatinine and a whole bunch of other stuff. You basically couldn't get extra medications, you couldn't have various degrees of decrease in your EGFR, and you couldn't have various amounts of prednisone at various parts of the trial. It's quite complicated, but in their defense, as far as I can tell, they didn't change this based on the protocol that's registered at clinicaltrials.gov, unlike many other recent lupus trials. Endpoints were assessed in a primary and hierarchical structure, which I like. And with that, let's talk about who got into the trial. Patients were a median age of around 30. The majority, as, t- as typical for lupus trials, were female, about 90%. There was a nice distribution by different races. Uh, 38% were uh, Caucasian, but the remainder were split between patients who were black, Asian, or Latinx, which is, is great. I mean, most trials don't get this degree of representation. The mean time since lupus diagnosis was 4.6 years. So these are people who had had lupus for a little while. And the biopsy class was mostly pure class 4, so that was 51%, but a fair bit of pure 3, pure 5, and combinations of the other ones. Now, the EGFR of patients in this trial, as you would expect given the restrictions on patients with low EGFR, was a little bit higher than I'd like. About 80% of patients had a normal EGFR of greater than 60 milliliters per minute. About half were on MMF use at the screening time. So not everyone was taking MMF either. That I also find a little bit strange. Moving on to the results, the primary endpoint at week 52 was significantly more likely in patients who got voclosporin. That was reached by 41% in the voclosporin group and 23% in the placebo group. So that's the number needed to treat of about five or six patients to reach the primary endpoint at week 52. So not bad. I mean, that's actually a difference that I would consider clinically meaningful, but what did that mean clinically? If you look at the individual parts of the composite renal response, the only real difference was with proteinuria. The UPCR was obviously different between the two, but the EGFR was about the same and it was not statistically significantly different. Rescue medications were about the same and they were not statistically significantly different. Pa- patients who got more than 10 milligrams of prednisone for whatever amount of time in various parts of the trial, not significantly different. Whatever it is that voclosporin does, it appears to be most important in limiting persistent proteinuria. I am happy to go on record as saying that that is a laudable and important goal, but I do not think it is the only goal. What I really want is a medication that I can give to people who seem to be failing MMF and cytoxin and have a decreasing EGFR. Those patients were excluded from this trial. Another thing I would like to do is to see, even in patients who are doing well, does this medication prevent the development of long-term in stage renal disease? That was assessed, and it does not appear to be the case that this drug prevents that. And last but not least, as per all of these lupus trials, I would really like to know whether this actually improved a patient's quality of life. On clinicaltrials.gov, the trial protocol does say that they included quality of life questionnaires. They do not mention these at all in the manuscript or in the supplemental appendix. So I think we are again in the place that we find ourselves so often with this branch of research, which is waiting to find out whether it actually improves a patient's quality of life. There were a number of subgroup analyses that were also performed and a nice little forest plot, but I I truly don't think many of them matter very much. At the end of the day, it does look like bulclosporin has a meaningful and significant difference in proteinuria. It does not appear to matter for EGFR, and we may never know whether it matters for patient-reported outcome measures. As I said before, my main concern about this trial is that they really did give them an inadequate amount of MMF, And patients received, for really no reason that I can understand, a very rapidly tapered low-dose steroid regimen, which the authors audaciously claimed, and I quote, This study showed that a rapidly tapered low-dose steroid regimen can be effective in the treatment of lupus nephritis, reducing the risk of organ damage and toxic effects of prolonged corticosteroid use, end quote. I'm moderately surprised that that got through the reviewers at The Lancet because that's just not what this trial shows. We didn't compare a low-dose steroid regimen or a low-dose MMF regimen, for that matter, to a standard-of-care MMF or a standard-of-care steroid regimen. We just did it to everybody. And we can't really make statements about whether or not it worked. They point out that these rates were consistent with historical studies, which is fine. But that's historical studies. As I said, this was a selected group. Patients in this study had a good EGFR on the way in, and they're not necessarily the same people who went into those historical studies, and you really shouldn't be comparing to them in this oblique fashion. It very well may be appropriate or even desirable to cut the amount of MMF we give to patients with lupus nephritis down by 66%, and it may be worthwhile to cut out the first month or two of steroid regimens that we have been giving patients because maybe they'll do just fine, but this study did not assess that question, and I think the fact that it was done was a limitation, not a strength. That said, it looks like there's really something here. There was a real and significant difference in the rate of proteinuria at 52 weeks, which is a laudable and important goal for patients with lupus nephritis. And I think this is a drug that I'm going to be adding on to therapy with microphenolate. I would go so far as to say it's hard for me to imagine not giving this to a patient who comes in with class 4 nephritis, has over 1.5 grams of proteinuria, and would really like to not have proteinuria in the future. Whether I give them an abbreviated course of steroid and a suboptimal course of mycophenolate is a different question entirely, but it does seem like it would be reasonable to give them vocosporin and would likely be to their benefit. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please be sure to share with friends. You can find me on Twitter at EBRoom and have a wonderful week, everybody.